And today we're going to finish our study in Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. And we're going to cover verses 10 through, through the end of the chapter. Let's remember this Tuesday, the Supreme Court will be hearing a case of U.S. government versus Hobby Lobby. And it's over Obamacare. Hobby Lobby says they do not believe that they should be paying for the insurance of employees who want to get abortions and have other procedures that is not in line with their owner's philosophy. It has reached the Supreme Court. So that's going to be argued on Tuesday. So let's remember to pray for those people. And then by Wednesday, you would be able to hear that argument online. You just go to the Supreme Court and cite. Okay, so today we're going to look at the greetings and final instructions that Paul gives to the church at Colossae. Last week I gave you the overview. Now I'm going to look at it in just a little more detail. And so the first thing we have, beginning in verse 10, are the greetings from Paul's Jewish companions. Okay, Greetings from Paul's Jewish companions. And we see greeting number one in verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Now, who is Aristarchus? Well, from the text, we know one thing. He is under house arrest with Paul in Rome. We don't know how that happened. We don't know if he's in the same room with Paul or if he is in the same city and has communication with Paul. Uh, it could be that he's part of Paul's team. We know he is part of the Apostle Paul's team uh, because his name appears back in Acts 19 during the riot in Ephesus. Paul has gone in there and preached against idolatry. People are getting converted. It's caused a riot. And all the townspeople have gone into the amphitheater to uh, demand Paul's death. And they have hauled Aristarchus, this guy, into the amphitheater. And he's about ready to be trampled to death. And God delivers him through the wise counsel of one of the people who work for the city of Ephesus. Let's don't do anything too rash. You know? And Aristarchus is uh, released. And he stays with Paul throughout Paul's entire ministry. And when Paul is arrested in Jerusalem, and you know how he appeals to Caesar, and he's put on a prison ship, and that ship crashes on the, off the island of Malta. You remember that? And that's where he uh, you know, reaches into a fire and a poisonous snake bites him. Aristarchus is on that ship with Paul. So when Paul's arrested, he's going with him. Either as his companion, or he ended up getting arrested too. We don't know what the situation is, but now he is with the Apostle Paul, and he sends his greetings. Okay? Now look at greeting number two. And Mark, this is John Mark, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark, the cousin of Barnabas greets. Now, John Mark was on Paul's first missionary trip. The church at Antioch sends out Paul and Barnabas to go and plant churches. And Barnabas says, hey, we need a helper. i got a got a nephew or a cousin, uh, John Mark. He's probably a teenager. And he said, okay, let's, we can use all the help that we can get. So he goes with him. But after a week on the journey, we think John Mark is homesick. 
or he's doing more work than he expected. And even teenagers back in those days <laughs> didn't do work, had some aversion to work. <laughs> and so he abandons the Apostle Paul. But later, Paul asked Mark to come back years later. And he restores Mark. So we see Mark as the disciple of the second chance. And so he's now with the Apostle Paul in Rome, probably visiting Paul, ministering to him under Paul's house arrest. And Mark sends greetings. And then we have a parenthesis here in verse 10. He says, about whom you received instructions. So Paul must have sent them some instructions earlier. And here's what it said. If he, if Mark comes to you, welcome him. Now why would Paul have to say that? Wouldn't you think that if Mark showed up, he'd say, hey Mark, come on in. Why would Paul have to say, if Mark shows up, welcome him. It's because probably the rumors around this guy abandoned Paul, and they're still having doubts about Mark. And he's putting his stamp of approval on Mark as a legitimate disciple. And of course, Mark then will go on and he'll write the Gospel of Mark, which is one of the great Gospels. The easiest of all the Gospels to read. Shortest and easiest to read. And greeting number three, verse 11. And Jesus, who is called Justice, he greets. Now, we this is the only time that Justice is mentioned in the New Testament. There are other justices, but it's not this guy. Justice is a Latin name. Now, the Bible's written in Greek. The New Testament was written in Greek. But in this case, Paul uses the young man's Latin name. And if you were a citizen of Rome, you often used your Latin name. His Greek name is Jesus. His Latin name, probably a citizen of Rome, is Justice. And we don't know anything about this young man at all. And then Paul says this. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. Every Everybody else has abandoned Paul, who is a Jewish believer. I mean, after all, he's going to go up against Caesar. He's going to have a trial before Caesar. Now, Caesar, don't think of Caesar as some little character now. Caesar's the dictator of the whole world. And he's going to stand trial before this man. And uh, he has the power to just vindicate Paul or declare him guilty and take his head and it looks like most of Paul's Jewish friends have abandoned him, but these three have remained faithful, and they send their greetings. Okay? I like this word right here in verse 11. They have proved to be a comfort to me. you see that at the end of verse 11? They have proved to be a comfort to me. The Greek word there is a word that you would recognize. It's paragoria, from which we get our word paragoric. Now, if you're my age or older, you may know what paragoric is. Michelle has no idea what paragoric is. But my mother used to put paragoric on my gums when they ate. And uh, oftentimes you put it on little babies' 
gums when they were teething. And boy, did I like paragoric. <laughs> it eventually was outlawed <laughs> as, a, as an addictive drug, but it sure tasted good. <laughs> and uh, these people are a bomb. These people are like medicine to Paul. They comfort him they, in his pain and in his sorrow. They're there to stand by him and comfort him. So that's sort of an interesting word. And now we come to his greetings from his Gentile companions. Look at greeting number one, verse 12. And Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you. So the fact that he's one of them means he's a hometown boy. And we know back from chapter 1 and verse 9, it was Epaphras who preached the gospel for the first time in Colossae and planted or founded the church in Colossae. Colossae is not one of the churches that Paul founded. Epaphras founded. And uh, he's with Paul now, ministering to Paul. Uh, maybe he's representing the church to Paul. Uh, brought supplies to Paul. It's very possible. We're not sure. But he's now sending his greetings back to the church that he planted. And then Paul says this about him. He's always laboring fervently for you in prayers. Now why would he have to say that? See, every time you hear, read something, you have to ask questions. My students have learned this at Criswell. The ones that pass, anyway. They've learned this. Uh, and he says this. He's doing that, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. So he talks about how this guy is concerned about them. He wants them to mature. He's praying fervently for them. Uh, he spends an inordinate amount of time doing it. It's hard work. He doesn't give up. And then he says this in verse 13. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal or a great concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Uh, Paul backs up this statement with this statement. I bear him witness that he has a concern for you. Why would Paul have to say that? Why does Paul have to say, on a stack of Bibles, I swear he's concerned about you. I guess the people back home maybe thought that he'd abandoned them and he wasn't concerned about them. Maybe uh, he had gone and said, I'm going to go see Paul, and uh, they were expecting him back, and he hasn't come back, and they said, we need him, you know, we need our preacher back here. And, and uh, he doesn't come back, so Paul says, uh, well, he's concerned about you, and I, I swear on it. In fact, we discover, we won't turn there, but we discover in the other letter written to the Colossians, which is the book of Philemon, down at the end, we discover that Epaphras is also a prisoner. So he's done something to tick off the Romans, and he's been imprisoned as well. And uh, so he can't get back right at that point. He will come back later, but at that point he can't come back. And Paul wants them to know he is concerned about them. Does that make sense? It's sort of interesting when you... It's not reading between the lines. It's just asking the right questions and figuring things out. And then we come to the second and third greetings from Paul's Gentile companions that are with him there in Rome. And we see that in verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. So here we have Luke as a Gentile, and we see Demas as a Gentile. 
which, and we know Luke is a gospel writer, Luke is the only person to write one of the 66 books of the Bible who is Gentile. The only Gentile writer of a Bible book. And he is there with the Apostle Paul, again, ministering to him. He may have brought some medical supplies. We don't know what the situation is. Uh, Luke joined Paul's missionary uh, team in Macedonia. Paul's in Troas. When the church at Antioch sends Paul out, he has an idea that he's going to go in one direction, and God stops him. The door's closed. And then he seeks to go in another direction, and God stops him again. And he can't go in that direction. And then one night, Paul has a vision. He has a dream. And in this dream, he sees a man of Macedonia. A man from Europe. And in the dream, the man says, Come on over here and preach the gospel. And so Paul shares that with his team, and they say, well, This must be the will of God. So instead of going into Asia Minor, he goes across into Europe. And there he meets Luke. And Luke joins his missionary team. And Luke is still with him. In fact, Luke stays with Paul, except for short periods of time when he has to go and, and, and tend to business. He stays with Paul all the way to the point of Paul's death. Over in 2 Timothy, which is written about six or seven years after this, Paul has been arrested the second time, and this time he's going to die. And in 2 Timothy... He says this. Only Luke is with him. Everybody else is abandoned Paul. And in that same letter, he said, and Demas has forsaken. So we have Luke who stays and Demas who strays. And one is a faithful apostle and missionary with Paul, and the other becomes an apostate. The difference between an apostle and apostate. One stays and one strays. Demas is the only person in this list where there is no description of it. These other guys, he gives descriptions, fellow workers, all this kind of stuff, Luke the physician, but then look at verse 14, and Demas. See that? Paul's probably having some doubts about Demas even right here. Because he doesn't say anything favorable about Demas. And then in verse 15, we have the recipients of the greeting. Of the greetings. And he says, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea. That's a neighboring town about 11 miles away. And Nymphus, and some translations say Nympha. If it's Nympha, it's a female. If it's Nymphus, it's a male, and the church that is in his or her house. If it's a woman, she's hosting the church like Lydia hosted the church in her house. So the greetings are not only going to be distributed among the church at Laodicea, Paul wants the neighbor, neighboring church to be greeted as well, and the patron of that church or patroness to be greeted also. <clears throat> And now we have Paul's final instructions. Verse 16 through 17. First is instructions to the church at Colossae. Look what he says. And when this epistle, when my letter is read among you, that means reading it out loud when the church is gathered, 
see to it that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans. So after you hear everything I have to say to you, I want this letter taken to the neighboring town, and I want the letter read to the believers in that church as well. Now, we don't know whether they take Paul's original letter over there, or whether they make a copy of his letter and send a copy over there. We're not told that. But the same instructions that's given to the church at Laodicea is given, uh, to, to Colossae is given to the church at Laodicea. Why would that be? Because they need the same instructions. They're facing the same problems that the church in Colossae is facing. Colossae, they're facing this group of Judaizers who are coming and saying you need to be circumcised, you need to keep the ceremonial law, Christ is enough, you need to add to Christ if you really want to be complete. And you know the whole story. And these Judaizers have not only stopped at the church at Colossae and taught that, they've gone to the neighboring town and they're spreading their heresy everywhere. So Paul says, make sure the church at Laodicea hears this as well. And then he says something very interesting. Look in verse, into verse 16. And you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. What epistle? We don't have any epistle from Laodicea in our Bible. So either Paul wrote a letter to Laodicea and it got lost, never added to the canon of Scripture, it wasn't inspired or whatever. We don't have any letter to Laodicea. So wherever that letter is, we don't have an account of it. It certainly wasn't added to the Bible. And even if it was not inspired, it's not around anywhere. So we have no idea what Paul said in that letter. But there's a second possibility. It may not have been lost. The letter to the Laodiceans may indeed be the book of Ephesians. Now I'll tell you why. The book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians opens up this way. Ephesians, of course, is also in Asia Minor, right around this area. <laughs> And the book of Ephesians opens up like this. Paul, apostle of Jesus Christ, to the saints who are in Ephesus. That's how it reads in our English Bible. But in many of the Greek manuscripts, the words in Ephesus are not there. In the oldest manuscripts, the words in Ephesus are not there. It simply reads like this. And to the church, and to the saints, in the church, in, and there's a blank space. And it could be that that is the letter that Paul wants to be read in Colossians. I'm going to show you, well, that's one of the reasons why we think that's possible. We're not sure, but you know, you want to know some options. I want you to notice who delivers the letter to the Ephesians. Okay? So I want you to just move back left in your Bible, two books. Only about three or four pages. And look at Ephesians chapter 6. Are you still with me? You understand what I'm saying? Okay, look who delivers the letter. And it's chapter 6 and verse 21. Here's what it says. But that you also know my affairs and how I'm doing, 
Look what he says. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister to the Lord, will make all things known to you. Who? Tychicus. That's who's delivering the letter to the Ephesians. Who's delivering the letter to the Colossians? Tychicus. Remember that? If you were with us these past weeks, you know it's the same God. He's probably making making the rounds. He's going to deliver a letter to Ephesus. He's going to deliver the letter to Colossians. And then they're to trade the letters when it's all over. So that's a possibility. All we know is that Paul has written sometime or another to the Laodiceans, and he wants that letter read to the Colossians as well, and vice versa. Okay? Now, so Paul gives those instructions to the church. I want your letter read over there, and I want their letter read to you. That's the instructions to the church. Now go back and look at his instructions to an individual. His instructions to an individual. And we see that in verse 17. And say to Archippus, I have a message for Archippus. <coughs> say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you've received in the Lord so that you may fulfill it. <coughs> Tell Archippus to get on the ball and fulfill that ministry that God has given him. Sounds very similar to what Paul says to Timothy, who's a pastor over in Ephesus later on, where he says to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. Why would Paul have to tell Timothy to fulfill his ministry? Because Timothy's not fulfilling his ministry. And you know why Timothy's not fulfilling his ministry? Because he's a young guy and he's got a lot of people in that church they're putting pressure on him to do one thing or another, and he doesn't know what to do. And Paul says, stand up, young man. God's given you a ministry. Fulfill your ministry. And now, here's another guy in the church at Colossae. His name's Archippus. And Paul says, take heed to the ministry with which you received in the Lord, so that you may fulfill it. So, who is this guy, Archippus? We believe Archippus... <laughs> is likely the minister and elder in the church at Colossae. And he's a young man. And just like Timothy, because of his youth, uh, he doesn't handle, handle problems. He's not mature enough to handle problems. The Judaizers, the heretics, have come in and said, you need to add circumcision. You need to add the law in order to be complete in Christ. Here's Archippus. He's just, what am I supposed to do? I do this, this, and that. Paul says, stand up! Do something! Fulfill your ministry! Now we know who this guy is because if you sit, look over in Philemon and just turn now right in your Bible past the T-books. Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd. Timothy, 1st and 2nd. Titus. And then right after the T-books, immediately after the T-books, you find Philemon. And look what it says. Now, this is a letter that's written. This is a second letter written to the church at Colossae. Look what he said. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer. Now, look at this. And the beloved Aphia, that's the woman, probably the wife of Philemon, Mr. and Mrs. Philemon. Now, look at this. And Archippus. You see that? Our fellow soldier. He is 
in the Lord's army, and he's a minister, and to the church that is in your house. And he gives them instruction. So here's Archippus. He has a ministry to fulfill. He's been called into the ministry. And he's not answering that call, or he's stumbling in the call. And Paul says, get on the ball. Fulfill your ministry. So here we see this. Is, now remember, this is going to be right out loud. When the church meets. And there's Archippus. He's in the meeting when it's being read out loud. And Paul says, tell Archippus. Wait a second, he's right there. Get on the ball and fulfill your ministry. And that's being said in front of everybody. What do you think this guy feels like? You know? My students think I embarrass them sometimes in class. This guy, I bet you he felt like he should, if he could just dig a hole and just fall through it, he would. But... See, Paul's using all, all of his psychology to get this guy on the ball. And he's, he's not telling this Archippus to do it. He's telling the church to tell Archippus to come up and say, come on, young man, stand up. We'll support you. We're behind you. You know, be the leader of this church. And so you can see how Paul operates when he writes these letters. And that's sort of interesting. And now we come to the closing signature and the benediction of the book. Paul says this salutation by my own hand. Everything else up until that point has been dictated by Paul and written down by Timothy. But from this point on, Paul takes the pen and in his own hand he signs his name Paul. And uh, this was Paul's way of showing that the letter was a real McCoy. It's not a forgery. A lot of a lot of forgeries going on in Bible times. You don't know about it. There are a lot of letters that claim to be written from Paul and Peter and all these kinds of things. So to authenticate this letter, to show it wasn't a forgery, Paul picked up the pen himself and signed his signature. And it was a signature that was distinct. By the way, everybody's signature is distinct. Do you know that? There's a science of handwriting analysis. I'm not talking about predicting the future using handwriting like the gypsies do or the state fair or something like that. But everybody's signature is distinct. It's because when you sign your name, you've signed it over and over and over all your life. That signature is part of your subconscious. You don't have to think about when you sign your name, do you? You just sign it. That's why your signature can never be copied exactly. You can get handwriting experts and they can look and they can tell whether the thing was written subconsciously or whether it was done consciously by a forger. And Paul's name was distinct the way he signed his name, showing that this is a letter indeed from Paul and everything that's in it has his stamp of approval. He wants it carried out. And then he says this in verse 18. Remember my chains. I've told you about me praying for you and you know, Paphras praying for you. I only have one request. Remember my chain. You know, there's thousands of Christians out there in the world right now who are being persecuted. Twenty Christians this last week, I forget where it was, I just saw a report, were put to death in one of these countries. Just being Christian. They can't, they don't have a media. They're in countries where the media does not, where they have no voice. 
They get their voice to us. We have no idea what they're going through. But we need to remember the believers in our day who are in shame and being martyred for the faith. There are people that are in Islamic countries. Their faith is being tested every day. Their life is on the line. There are people in some of the African countries where scrupulous individuals kidnap like missionaries, hold them for ransom, trying to get money from their relatives here in the United States. We need to remember our brothers and believers around the world who are suffering persecution and chains. And then Paul ends his letter with this. Grace. God's power. God's favor be with you. And they're going to need grace, and we need grace too, to resist heresy, not to be deceived. We need God's grace. We need God's grace to, to put off those old habits that we have that Paul talked about, put on new attitudes, get rid of malice, put on kindness, and most of all, love that binds us together. We need grace to walk worthy in the Lord. To do all things for God's glory. Not only in word, but also in deed. We need God's grace. And they needed God's grace. And then Paul ends it with the words, word amen, which means, and so be it. And with that he ends his letter. Now, a couple of things I just want to point out. Number one is that Paul expects there to be a link between local churches. You see that? He expects there to be a link between the church at Hierapolis, the church at Laodicea, and the church at Colossae. He expects us to know what's going on in neighboring towns and other churches. You know, the Southern Baptist Convention was started back in the 1800s with an understanding that they, the churches would cooperate with each other. And in theory, we still cooperate with each other. When we send money to the denomination... All the churches send money, and then the denomination sends out missionaries who are supported by all the churches. And in that way, we cooperate. But if the truth were known, and the truth was confronted, we really don't care about the church down the street, do we? We care about our church. And Paul says we should be linked to other believers in other churches. And I think we need to be more involved in other churches. See what God is doing there. He's not just doing something in our church. He may be doing something great in another church. They may not have the same doctrine or the same name, but he's there. And he's ministering. And we need to know what God's doing. And we should be working with those other churches. Another thing that hit me as I finished reading this book this week was but so often we say that we want to have a New Testament church. I remember when I planted a church. They said, what kind of church are you planting? I said, a New Testament church. Well, what New Testament kind of church would you want to plant? Would you want to plant one like Colossae? They're having a lot of problems, aren't they? You know, every New Testament church had problems. There's no such thing as a New Testament church that's perfect. Every New Testament church was a problem-filled church. Corinth, think about that. Ephesians, Colossae, Thessalonica, all churches have problems. There's no such thing as a New Testament church except a problem 
church. So we have to be careful that we do not romanticize the New Testament churches as if they were the perfect churches and we've gotten far away from New Testament, the New Testament pattern. In fact, you know what? We're right in the center of the New Testament pattern because we've got problems too. Okay. And then another thing hit me is that this entire letter was read at once. And, uh, you know, there are only 85 verses in Colossae. We spent about six weeks covering those. But these 85 verses were read at once in one sitting, which meant that the people heard from the beginning to the end and could just see the pattern of the letter. It all made sense. It all fit together. So, last night... I read through the letter out loud, <clears throat> mouthed the words, not just literally screaming them out, but mouthed the words as if I were reading out loud. It took me eight minutes to read the letters of the Colossians. That's how long that would have taken, that letter to be read in the church in the first century. I want you to go home today and read it out loud, totally in the context, and just see how it flows, and you'll really get the, uh, the meaning of Paul's letter here. And I think that we need to realize that there's one thing that Paul wants to leave with us. And that is that Christ should have the preeminence in our lives. We're complete in Christ. There's nothing that can be added to Christ. We need to start living like Christ. We need to put off those bad qualities and become a much nicer, gentler, kinder, loving people. Forbearing one another's forbearing one another and forgiving one another constantly. These are the things that Paul wants for us. And always, above all, he says, put on love, which binds us together in unity. And allow peace to be the umpire. Allow peace to be that rule by which we judge and make decisions. Is this going to produce peace in the church? Or is it going to cause a division in the church? It's better for me to take a step back and take a hit personally. For the unity of the church. And Paul says, grace be to you. You need grace to accomplish this. And so be it. Amen. Next week we'll start our study in the book of Titus. Right. Lord, we thank you for a, a wonderful letter. Help us to get a sense of what it must have been like to hear the knock on the door and the letter arrive on a Sunday. We're reclining at a meal, eating the Lord's Supper, honoring Christ, remembering Him. And now we begin a ministry time of singing, praying, and testimonies. And everybody gathers around and we, we read this letter. It took weeks to arrive through a courier. It's a letter from Paul. Oh, how their hearts must have waited with anticipation at the words of Paul. This wisdom from on high, birthed in prayer, delivered with compassion and concern. Oh, Lord, help us to realize that we have a letter here. It's not only to be read in Laodicea and Hierapolis, it was read to us these past few weeks out loud. We've received this letter of Paul 
inspired by you for us. And now, Lord, we ask that you give us grace to implement it in our class and in our church. In Christ's name.